this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Allison Lee, one of the co-hosts of the channel and assistant professor of art history at the University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Today, we'll be talking to Maria Tarutina about her new book, The Icon and the Square, Russian Modernism and the Russo-Byzantine Revival, which was published by Penn State University Press and, I'm happy to announce, recently received the 2019 USC Book Prize in Literary and Cultural Studies. Dr. Tarutina is Assistant Professor of Art History at Yale NUS College in Singapore, where she's been teaching art history since 2013. Her research explores the architecture, painting, and sculpture of Imperial and early Soviet Russia with the aim of tracing its historical contribution to international modernism. Dr. Tarutina has published two other books. The first was a co-edited volume titled Byzantium Modernism, and that came out from Brill in 2015. And the other was the recent edited volume New Narratives of Russian and East European Art Between Traditions and Revolutions, which was just published by Routledge at the end of 2019. The book she wrote, which we'll be discussing today, though, charts the rediscovery and rigorous reassessment of the medieval Russo-Byzantine artistic tradition between the years 1860 and 1920. In particular, Dr. Tarutina argues that there was an intimate link between Byzantine revivalism and modernist experimentation, one that ultimately contributed to the formation of the 20th century avant-garde movements that are so well known. The book, in this sense, retrieves a neglected but really vital history, one that has been ignored in favor of the secular formalism of mainstream modernist criticism. As a result, her investigation builds a compelling counter-narrative to prevailing notions of Russian modernism, one that attends to the dialogue between generations of artists, but also collectors, critics, and theorists. The book, in my opinion, is a real contribution, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Maria Tarutina, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Well, I I wonder if you could begin the interview today by telling us a little bit about yourself, uh, who you studied with, uh, where you got your PhD. Just tell us who you are and what we should know about you. 
So um, I studied at uh, Yale University in New Haven where I got both my uh, Bachelor of Arts, but also my uh, my doctorate. So I was there for a total of 12 years, actually. Um, oh, I never knew that. Oh, my gosh. Wow, that's extraordinary. A lot of, a lot of time in New Haven, which I actually really enjoyed. <laughs> um, and I actually worked with uh, two uh, dissertation advisors, David Jocelyn, who is a modernist, and he's a uh, well known for his uh, work on post-war and contemporary uh, American art. And then with Tim Barringer, who is a a scholar of Victorian art. Um, So I didn't actually work with a Russianist, uh, which was really, I think, in the end, a positive thing, because it gave me a chance to... um, Think about different disparate fields um, in a way that I think I wouldn't have done uh, had I focused exclusively um, on Russian art. Um, And that's actually how I came to this project, because I was looking at comparable phenomena in different contexts and sort of wondering, well, how does this play out in the Russian context? Um, So I think that was one of the reasons why I came up with this uh, topic. Mm-hmm. Where are you from originally? You have a Russian background, I'm assuming, from your name, and we've sort of discussed this before, but tell our listeners, you know, that angle of things as well. Right. So um, I'm, I'm originally Russian. I was born in Moscow, um, but ended up uh, leaving Russia at the age of four because my father was a journalist. He was a, a for international correspondent for Pravda at the time. Um, and so we actually moved around quite a lot when I was growing up and predominantly lived in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so I grew up in Ethiopia and Zimbabwe. Uh, and then uh, after that, uh, went to the U.S. for for college. Um, and now I'm in Singapore, where I've been living for uh, the last six years now. Um, and here I'm working at uh, Yale and U.S., which is a new liberal arts college um, that's been <clears throat> newly created by Yale University and the National University of Singapore. Uh, just started, just opened in 2013. Uh, so that's my, I guess, um, third continent if you can call it yeah that. wow what a history of travel you know I, I I wonder or I imagine that that inform, informs your work as well in terms of you just really coming from this truly kind of global perspective this thing we're looking for in art history nowadays honestly well I can certainly tell you that for my my second book project um, that's something that uh, has really being um, located in Asia has definitely um, changed the way I think about um, European Ooh. and Western art um but yeah that's for another wow. that's for another day <laughs> yeah I am, I am going to sneakily sort of circle back around to that at the very end because I do want to hear about your next project but only once we've really gotten to dig into to this one so I know that you mentioned just a moment ago in terms of telling us about your background and this fascinating you know um, combination of of dissertation advisors that you had and how that you know, brought a certain perspective that that made you start thinking about modernism, I guess, and in the expansive way that this book covers. But can you say a little bit more about how you came to write The Icon in the Square? 
Absolutely. So the the book comes out of my um, my, my dissertation. Uh, so I originally sort of conceptualized it uh, while I was still at graduate school, and it actually came out of the of the graduate coursework that I was doing. I was taking um, a couple of classes at the same time, and there there seemed to be some um, gaps or let's say inconsistencies for me uh, that I really wanted to grapple with. So um, the first one was a, a seminar on the Gothic revival and. England and Germany. Uh, and it was very much discussed as this uh, pan-European phenomenon, right, in the uh, mid-19th century. And I was very curious how that would look like in the Russian context, because, well, there is no sort of Gothic or Renaissance legacy in Russia. Uh, and yet there there was this, you know, pan-European uh, 19th century phenomenon of sort of looking back to this deep medieval past. So I was sort of uh, curious about how that would um you know, how, how that is reflected in the Russian context. So that was one aspect of it, kind of the larger question of medieval revivalism. The other one was uh, a, a seminar that I was taking on Byzantine icons with uh, Rob Nelson. And there seemed to be this big disjunction. And of course, I'm trained as a modernist. Um, and there seemed to be this big disjunction between how um, modernist artists in the early 20th century were uh, perceived to understand uh, icons as objects, right? And the, 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 the argument there goes that they're, they're flat, right? They have these proto-modernist qualities about them. And to quote uh, the an art since 1900, right? Our sort of Bible of modern art as the textbook, um, there is a, a, a section on Totlin which says that Totlin um, used icons in the way that Picasso used African masks, right? So that's to say uh, sort of mining them for purely formal elements. However, when you look at uh, sort of scholarship on icons, in fact, they're discussed as anything but flat, right? Uh, there's this big emphasis on <clears throat> the kind of haptic and experiential qualities uh, of icons rather than the purely visual. And so to me, that seemed like a real disjunction. Why are sort of 20th century artists seeing icons as sort of flat uh, images when <clears throat> in, in the Byzantine context or in the medieval context, they're seen as these um, mobile, right, multi-sensory and fully spatialized experiences. And then I sort of started thinking, well, maybe that's just us misunderstanding, right, the early 20th century. Maybe there was more going on. So that's sort of how I came at it uh, from uh, both the revivalist sort of 19th century angle and then the sort of early 20th century, uh, you know, uh, question of, well, how do I, how do artists use these quote unquote primitive objects, right? Do they actually even see them as primitive uh, or is that a, a misnomer? Um, and I guess the, 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 the kind of the, the final kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, element in that is um, how is it and why is it that some of the earliest uh, examples of abstract art come out of Russia, right? Which certainly in the early 20th century is in many ways seen as this peripheral backwater, right? And, and when compared to Europe or in compared especially to Paris, and yet, um, you know, some of the biggest names uh, of 
associated with abstraction are Russian rather than French artists. I was also kind of curious to know what was it about uh, Russian culture and Russian history in the early 20th century that enabled uh, artists, uh, you know, to engage these sort of big paradigmatic uh, shifts in the visual arts when one would more sort of naturally expect that to happen in Paris, right? Sort of capital of the 19th and early 20th century. Um, So those were kind of all the questions that I was uh, curious about and and thinking uh, about, sort of addressing and trying to figure out and and that's essentially how this book came into being me trying to to sort of grapple with some of those um uh questions and and yeah, and, and those I are guess big gaps. questions and i i just love hearing the sort of backstory about how books come about you know it's it sometimes it's like you're describing it's in very specific lectures or seminars or you know i think sometimes it's uh after reading other people's books and you sort of realize that there's a spot that they left open that you want to jump into i mean every everybody has a different story and i i just i in a way i wish we added to our acknowledgments in our books you know a sort of brief paragraph about how these things came about but you know then what would we have to discuss in interviews (laughs) so um thank you for sharing it with us so i want to dive into the book itself you know we've kind of got a nice foregrounding going already our listeners have a sense of the kind of issues you're grappling with in the book but it actually has a, a really fascinating structure and i wonder if before we kind of dive into the material in each chapter um, and see, you know, what direction that takes us. Uh, I wondered if you'd kind of talk about this, the first two chapters being uh, kind of long form introductory material as, as maybe the way I would describe it, kind of setting the stage, but in a way that... Um, I just found so helpful. I mean, I could imagine assigning that first chapter in particular to even undergraduates, I think, and really having them get a different perspective on on Russia, on the avant-garde, on this Byzantine heritage, you know. But then the the last three chapters are what I would call case studies, but I know you say something in the introduction about kind of these are not your your standard case studies. And, and you're right that they're not, but focusing basically on specific artists and the context of their time and uh, the influence that they had later. So how did you come to, to formulate this kind of structure of the book in terms of these two different modes that you're in? Um, so that's a really good question. Um, I think the way I was thinking about it is that uh, the, the the sort of um, the discursive landscape in the early 20th century and how icons were understood was itself constantly shifting. Uh, it wasn't stable. Um, and sort of that's what I, I try to um, emphasize in the book, that there are both both the artists themselves, but also uh, a lot of the critics, right, and, and, and art theorists of the early 20th century have oftentimes competing views. And I felt that in order to understand, you know, how and why these competing views uh, came into being, it was really important to sort of see what happened in the decades preceding them. Uh, and I think that one of the things that we see a lot with uh, the sort of history of Russian modern art is that it's often treated in a vacuum, 
we sort of have this narrative of, well, it all starts in Paris in the in the 1860s and 70s with the Impressionists. Then we move forward to the Neo-Impressionists as on. Then, of course, we have Picasso and Matisse. And then insert your Russian avant-garde artists here. Right? <laughs> um, and, of course, there's the famous story of how Tatlin went to Picasso's studio in 1914. And that's how he oh, got his yes. idea for the corner calendar reliefs. Right? So there's a sense that um, it's a narrative that uh, shifts directly from Paris to, to Moscow in the early 19-teens. And to me, this felt a little, um, you know, this is how we teach art history. That's a lot of, of how, you know, art history textbooks are written. Uh, but it just seemed that it didn't do justice to the reality of the time and of the moment. And that, in fact, um, of course, Russian artists in the early 20th century were in dialogue with, uh, you know, trends in Paris and Munich, London, uh, and elsewhere. But I also think, you know, they're, they're, also fundamentally embedded in their own cultural context. And so to me, it felt really important to look at, you know, some of the debates that were going on in Russia in the 1890s um, and how that also shaped those artists, because that's when they were uh, coming of age. That's when they were studying in art schools, right? What were some of the key uh, issues, right, that were happening at the time? And I think this is a a general um, trend that we see in 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 scholarship on modern russian art that the modernist period is sort of treated in isolation of what happens uh in the 19th century um and and i i think you know that's not to say you know i'm not and i want to be very clear about this i'm not trying to advance some kind of nationalist you know narrative uh but i do feel that it's important to think of a kind of about an embedded art history right uh in a way artists are absolutely in dialogue with major international trends, but are also still guided by local concerns at the same time, right? So there's this kind of, in my mind, push and pull between the sort of the local, the regional, and then the global and international. And I feel like oftentimes the the, the local and the regional gets left out in favor of the, of the global international. Um, so that's a kind of, uh, you know, history and context that I wanted to excavate, especially because um, as I came to see doing my research, that you see a lot of alliances in the art world that you would think are completely counterintuitive, right? And by that, I mean, you know, you have um, Byzantine scholars, right, who are interested in in sort of, you know, archaeological concerns, uh, excavating uh, and, and restoring these medieval churches. How on earth, you know, and why would their interests align with these avant-garde artists who um, in sort of mainstream narratives are always identified as iconoclasts, right? Let's throw, you know, um, Tolstoy, you know, off the steamship of modernity, right? They are always positioned as being opposed to the past, right, as being very future oriented. And yet I think that wasn't in fact the case, right? Um, That I don't think they were necessarily rejecting the past. I think they were kind of looking at ways of reinventing it. Uh, and I think that's not the same. And so these these very hard divides between the 19th and the 20th century, the sort of post-revolutionary and pre-revolutionary moments um, seem to me to be, you know, overstated in many ways in the existing literature. So I kind of wanted to go back and, and look at these relationships again um, and just complicate that story a little bit. Well, I could not agree with you more in terms of, you know, I think these periodizations definitely need reassessing, maybe need reassessing constantly, especially in terms of 
the thing that you're describing about the, the local versus the global, you know, the, these things mean that the periodizations have to shift at the same time. So oh, I'm, I'm just I'm thrilled to hear you say that. I mean, obviously, I work on Russia, too. So you're sort of preaching to the choir. But I hope our listeners also maybe think, oh, you know, this is an interesting idea and, and are influenced by it as well. So let's dig in. I mean, you, you've already sort of started describing uh, some of the content that's in chapter one and two, and maybe I should say uh, the the titles of these. The first chapter is called Byzantium Reconsidered, Revivalism, Avant-Gardism, and the New Art Criticism. And maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about what's contained in there. And then the second chapter is From Constantinople to Moscow and St. Petersburg, Museums, Exhibitions, and Private Collections. And I think that title gives a, you know, a big hint, as, as the first one does, about what's in that chapter, but talk to us about sort of what what's contained in here, the discoveries you made, you know, what you're really proud of having uncovered or argued. Uh, there's a lot in them, so I don't even want to sort of venture a summary. <laughs> um, so, so I was sort of starting the book, uh, looking at the 18th century and predominantly uh, the way in which Enlightenment views uh, shaped the understanding of Byzantium and Russia. Of course, uh, we're looking at uh, you know, the reign of Catherine the Great, right? Who's uh, a, a great Europhile, right? Herself. Um, so in that uh, moment, right, we see Byzantium um, very much identified and understood in the way that it's understood in uh, a the rest of Europe, right, and France and Germany and England. And that's sort of, it's understood as the dark ages, right, a period that did not produce anything worthwhile artistically or or, or culturally in general. Um, and uh, so I, I start there um, and I look at the way that we then see this gradual shift from the closing decades of the 18th century to the mid-19th century, where these uh, views are revised. Um, and of course, the, the revision of views on Byzantium are intimately tied in uh, with Russia's own kind of um, self-conception as being um, peripheral, right? And this kind of um, century-long identity crisis that, uh, you know, on the one hand, Russia is viewed as sort of backward, uh, Asiatic, right? Um, and in, in, from that perspective, uh, the Byzantine scene has, um, you know, part of Russia's, uh, again, kind of Eastern despotic legacy, right? Um, and then on the other hand, there's this sort of understanding that maybe um, – Russia's Westernization, as it was uh, the sort of uh, initiated by by Peter the Great, Peter the First, right, um, was not unproblematic, right? Up until that point, it's seen as a positive. Uh, Russia is being Westernized. Russia is becoming more Europeanized. But with the rise of Slavophile thought in the mid nineteenth century, uh, there's this way of really challenging those ideas and sort of thinking. Uh, and, and and you can see how this makes sense coming, you know, in the wake of the Napoleonic. Wars and then the Crimean War, uh, where Russia is at, you know, in conflict with its European neighbors. Uh, 
And so, and so this, you know, starts to uh, put pressure on this idea of Russia as being part of Europe, right? Maybe Russia is in fact not part of Europe. And if it's not part of Europe, then what is it, right? And then what is its cultural legacy? Um, it's not exactly part of Asia either. So in this case, Byzantium becomes this middle ground, right? And of course, uh, historically, uh, Russia adopted uh, Christianity from Byzantium, right? So it follows the, 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 the Greek, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. So it makes sense that both culturally and visually, uh, Russia's sort of um, patrimony and heritage is coming from Byzantium. And so what we see and what the, the first chapter traces is this discursive shift in, in seeing Byzantium no longer as this sort of embarrassing, um, you know, dark stain in Russia's history, uh, and, and, and seeing it more as a kind of an alternative to uh, Western Europe and the Western European uh, Latin and Gothic heritage. So that's sort of uh, in very broad strokes um, where that chapter starts. And then it sort of um, looks more specifically at uh, key figures uh, such as Prince Grigory Gagarin, Nikodim Kandakov, and Adrian Prakhov, uh, who were uh, sort of instrumental in, in spearheading um, both the kind of uh, philosophical Reevaluation of of Byzantium for 19th century Russia, but also the very sort of real material excavation and and uh, restoration of these uh, medieval monuments and icons, um, and sort of starting to um, reconceptualize <clears throat> these works not simply as these um, you know medieval relics and cult objects, but actually as works of art with a capital A. Um, and that's sort of the what I then um, expand on in the second chapter is sort of the way that um, these uh, medieval uh, works of art were uh, institutionalized and exhibited to a broader public, right? How did some of these ideas go from a more narrow circle of, of academics and scholars to then um, uh, sort of being part of a broader public dialogue and debate? And that's, you know, the fact that they were uh, newly acquired in museums, right? And then we see a series of exhibitions where these works are then presented out to the public uh, Again, no longer as these sort of um, cult objects, but as um, works of high art. And we start to see um, kind of a rise of an art historical literature around them, right? So um, there, there are new schools of icon painting that identified. Uh, and what does that imply? Well, it implies then that um, these works have their own uh, stylistic schools, right? In the same way that we think about sort of Italian Renaissance art. Uh, they're no longer sort of viewed as timeless, you know, um, co mindless copies, right, of the same artistic formula over and over again, but rather we start seeing an artistic evolution, right? And then once you have an art artistic evolution, that implies that you can have originality, right? That implies that you can have master artists, right, who innovate um, certain things. So the second chapter uh, very much um, 
looks at uh, the way that there there's this big uh, shift in understanding these uh, sort of Byzantine and, and Russo-Byzantine uh, uh, icons, not simply as archaeological uh, curiosities, but as aesthetic masterpieces. So we have this kind of recasting. Um, so those are the, the first two chapters. Uh, and that it, I think sets the scene right for the individual mm-hmm. artists. Um, it and- sure does. So, so yeah, um, I think I that. I wanted to say that I mean, there's so many like individual points that you make in in those first two chapters that that maybe are too specialized for me to kind of dig into. But um, I thought that the the tension that you describe in that first chapter between and you mentioned this before, you know, the the Oriental, as it's referred to, or the Asiatic, as as you were just describing, on one hand, and the Byzantine, um, you know, is is fascinating and has applicability well beyond what what we Russian specialists, you know, think about, and um, I think really could stand to kind of revise understandings of what Orientalism as a whole are. So I wondered if you might say a little bit more about that because it's it's such an important important tension in in that moment in the late 19th century and even earlier to understand. Yeah, so this was something that um, I thought, of course, there's the, this whole idea of uh, Byzantium being the, the medieval Eastern Empire to the Latinate sort of Gothic West. Um, I think that's uh, a distinction that has been both in the Russian and the European literature very much, um, you know, throughout the Enlightenment period, and it only really starts to to be challenged in the mid nineteenth century. But there was this also very interesting thing that I sort of discovered while I was researching uh, the first chapter, and that's that. Um, the Byzantine style, even within the Russian context, was sort of understood to be somehow more Eastern. Um, and so, for example, when um, is you know in the in the in the sort of Russia's imperialist um, mission, right? Uh, when um, we see um, you know the Russian Empire expanding into Central Asia and the Caucasus. Uh, one of the things that would happen is that there would be a, a newly constructed Orthodox cathedral in sort of your know, recently uh, acquired territories, right, as a way of asserting um, a Christian uh, Russian identity. And what's really interesting is that the further east you go, the more a kind of a particularly Byzantine style becomes used in the construction of these um, neo, you know, Byzantine cathedrals. Um, So I thought there was this kind of equation, even by the Russian state, right, of Byzantium as being the kind of the, the historically validated um, style in these territories, right? So looking at places like Georgia, Armenia, but even going as far as, you know, Kazakhstan, there's a sense that, oh, well, if you're going to build a church, what what style should you use? Well, of course, it should be Byzantine, right? But you can also see that there's a, a, there's a political imperative in that, right? Um, because at this point, Russia is very much in the late 19th century involved in the Eastern question, right? And where Russia claims... Uh, to be the rightful sort of heir, right, both politically but also uh, geographically of Byzantium, right? So it, it's making all these claims to 
to the Balkan territories, right, uh, as opposed to, let's say, Austria-Hungary or the Ottoman Empire. Russia sort of saying, well, Russia, not the Ottoman Empire, is the rightful heir to Byzantium. And therefore, extending that logic, right, the sort of Greece and the Balkan states should be under Russia's territorial control. Um, so there's also a, a kind of latent political agenda. Um, so the, it's not, you know, it's not purely aesthetic. It's not sort of innocent, uh, but it does also kind of uh, sort of really push on this idea of what is the Orient um, and who is the, the rightful heir to Byzantium. And of course, that depends on how you see Byzantium, right? Is it is it Oriental or is it something in between? Mm-hmm. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Wow. Yeah, still things that we're trying to answer today. So I, you know, I hope that those who work on this really should read that chapter. If they don't read any other part of the book, that one, you know, has some sort of ways that you try to untangle these threads that that I just think are so provocative, but but really compelling also. So from there, after these first two chapters, you dig into individual artists, but you really treat them as kind of satellites, which is is fascinating. I mean, you you talk about in the introduction how you're you're going to to think about them not in complete isolation, as sometimes happens in case studies, maybe when they're not done properly, uh, but as part of networks. And the first of these, chapter three, is on Mikhail Vrubel, uh, and then chapter four is on probably the figure that's most well known to those you know who don't study Russia or, or even. Russian modernism, and that's Kandinsky. Um, And then the final chapter, uh, Toward a New Icon, is on sort of Malievich, but then also Tatlin and what you call the cult of non-objectivity. So I want to take these one by one because these are major too. So uh, talk to us about this Vrubel chapter. And, you know, I feel like you are becoming very much the world's leading expert on Vrubel. You've written a lot about him. So I'm most excited maybe for you to talk about this one. Um, so yeah, I think one of the things that I was, um, thinking through with the case studies or the last three chapters are really, um, sort of me trying to think through and, and, and tease out, um, the kind of the, the preoccupying question of why is it, um, that in, in Russian modern art, you seem to have this, um, very uh, unusual coexistence uh, between sort of transcendental and mystical thinking on the one hand, and then a very um, sort of emphatic historical materialism on the other, uh, and how these seem to be diametrically opposed. So uh, sort of, and that's why I'm looking at Kandinsky on the one hand, and then Malevich and Tadlin on the other, because they seem to be in these opposing camps. Um, so, but it's sort of in, in my research, and then in 
in in the book in general, I'm I'm sort of trying to put pressure on that um, narrative, right, and those distinctions, and sort of say, well, maybe they are not as diametrically opposed as we think of them. Uh, and for me, there's in fact, you know, when we look at Russian modern art or or even Russian literature, right, if we look at you know someone like Dostoevsky, there is this um, ongoing kind of uh, dialectic, right, between the material and the mystical. So it seems that that is something that is very prevalent in Russian, both artistic and literary culture. And I sort of wanted to see where where is this coming from? Um, and so for me, someone like, like Rubel, uh, who is a 19th century artist, uh, very much embodies both of those trends in his art, right? On the one hand, we understand him to be a symbolist artist. Um, and he was very interested in, um, you know, all kinds of... Um, you know, biblical and apocryphal subject matter. He's best known for his series of paintings of the demon, right? Um, and also uh, he has a series of paintings of prophets and saints, right? And yet, on the other hand, he's really the first artist in Russia to challenge this kind of um, photographic realism, right? Uh, that is prevalent uh, certainly in the 1870s and 1880s in the in the art of the Vidadvizhniki or the Wanderers, um, and so he is sort of you know on, on maybe somewhat counterintuitively is also asserting a kind of very materialist um, surface uh, quality of his art. Right. Um, so this, again, felt like a kind of tension that someone is painting seemingly, you know, mystical subject matter, but then at the same time kind of asserting the, the, the pictorial surface of the canvas. Right. Um, and so, for example, uh, a 20th century uh, theorist who's uh, Nikolai Tarabukin, who writes a monograph on Rubel's art in the 1920s, sort of says, well, he's basically doing what Cezanne is doing in asserting the kind of um, the grid-like pictorial structure of, of the canvas, right? And I'm emphasizing brushstroke. So he's doing that, but, um, and this is sort of Tarabukin's uh, quote, he says, but Cezanne's still life view of the world was just completely contrary um, to Rubel kind of, you know, a transcendental kind of mystical uh, aesthetic, right? And some of the themes that he explores. So to me, uh, Rubel was a kind of a natural uh, starting point uh, for looking at how these two um, trends in Russian art coexist. Um, and of course, I also think he is one of these artists who then uh, in the 20th century is very much recast as the kind of predecessor and the father figure of the Russian avant-garde. Um, and of course, this is you know, intimately tied in with a kind of nationalist project, right? Um, we can see how, you know, uh, theorists like Nikolai Punin, for example, who are proponents of a particularly Russian and subsequently a Soviet avant-garde, uh, don't want to um, sort of root that uh, movement in French modernism, right? They want to situate it in a particularly sort of Russian artistic history. Um, and, you know, the, the logical uh, sort of first kind of founding figure, right, is Rubel. So there's a kind of interesting way in which he's also um, usurped by subsequent um, sort of art criticism and art historical writing, and then repositioned as this um, first modernist figure. 
and of and 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 the icon is the kind of corollary to that, right? Because Russia doesn't have a Renaissance tradition, right? Um, it, it sort of reclaims this iconic, um, you know, medieval tradition of art making as its kind of alternative genealogy for modernism. And so it sort of goes from the icons, you sort of jump to Rubel, right? And then you go off to, to Kandinsky and Malevich. And of course, uh, because Rubel is um, painting, um, you know, these iconic uh, themes as well, um, and he works on several restoration projects, uh, he does he does sort of present as a, a link, right, between the medieval and then the 20th century. Um, now, I'm not necessarily saying that that is what, in fact, he was consciously doing, uh, but that's certainly how he was reinterpreted by the 20th century um, critical and, and, and art historical establishment. Mm-hmm. There's a line in this chapter that I think summarizes so well what you're describing, and, and I love it. It was one of my favorite lines in the whole book. You say, Vrubel employed medieval evil means to modernist ends. And I just, oh, I was like, yes, boom, that's it. It just, it summarizes so much that when you really look at the paintings, you you realize that is missing from Cezanne or that, that is a departure. You know, this comparison is so strong. It's utilized so often, but it's, it's really more complicated than that. And this business of medieval means to modernist ends, I just, I think that that is such a great takeaway. So thank you for writing it. <laughs> I'm glad you like that phrase. Um, yeah, I think for me, it was sort of trying to think through, I think for Bruegel also, who was very much misunderstood during his lifetime. He was, you know, rejected by the official art establishment, by the official critical establishment. Um, and so for him, um, because he was very much going against the grain of the predominant realist school, uh, for him kind of looking back to um, medieval fresco painting or medieval mosaics almost seemed like a kind of justification to for what he was doing himself, right? So when he was using bright colors, right, or flat forms, uh, and everyone was sort of criticizing him for this, uh, he could say, there's a precedent yeah, for this. Very um, you know, there's, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of continuing what the medieval, you know, someone like Andrei Rublev was doing, right, what the medieval masters are doing. Um, so I'm not, I'm not this kind of Western importation, Right, because there is a lot of nationalist rhetoric in this time period, um, especially when we think about it in their like you know nineteen early nineteen teens in the context of the First World War. Right, so the sense that you know he's not simply kind of redoing Cezanne, right? He's doing something different um, and something that has a kind of um, a, a national. Uh, sort of, you know, something that, 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 that is, that could be viewed or understood as having, um, you know, roots in this national medieval past. That's, it's just, it's such great work. All right. Now Kandinsky, I wonder if this was the, the chapter that you were the most daunted to write. I mean, I, maybe that's an unfair question, but I can say that having read it, I think it's the one that I'm most likely to assign in, in classes, both on Russian art and just, I think in, on modernism. I mean, it, 
it really changes changes or changed my understanding of someone that I think I know so well. So tell us what what's in this chapter. Tell listeners what's in this chapter and um and uh and you know whether you were daunted to to take on such a canonical artist or or whether it was like ah no big deal. Um yeah, I think you know of course it's daunting because you know there've been so many books and exhibitions, right? Like what can you possibly so say many. that's new <laughs> <laughs> about Kandinsky? Um but one of the things that always struck me whenever you know I studied Kandinsky in art history classes or read about his work in, in textbooks of modern art was that everyone sort of says, well, you know, he, he, he's obviously, you know, the, the, I mean, I'm always a little hesitant to say the first mm. artist to, you know, paint Me an abstract too. painting, um, <laughs> but you know, he's one of the pioneers of abstract painting and everybody always discusses him in this kind of sense of like, Oh, you know, he's a little bit weird. <laughs> He does all this weird, like spiritual, touchy feely kind of, you know, like what he he doesn't fit into the kind of again the Matisse Picasso to Malevich uh, kind of narrative because of this, you know, his 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 insistence right on the spiritual and art right. That's the title of his um, his sort of seminal publication. And I sort of was interested in that and sort of thinking, well, you know. Why does he, you know, you know, really uh, draw out the kind of the the religious, the spiritual uh, aspects of his work? That was sort of one part of it. I'm like, you know, why, you know, why does he do this? He does seem like an outlier. I'd like to know oh, why. Um, but the other the other side of it was that you know he he's kind of an interesting figure in that he's both in the Russian art world, but also very conversant with uh, the European avant garde, right? Because he's he's based in Munich for a long mm-hmm. time. And then in the 30s, he he immigrates to to Paris, right? Um, so I'm very interested of thinking about him. He's both sort of a Russian artist, but also kind of not at the same time. And at the end of his life, he he you know took on French nationality. So is he does he even count as a Russian artist? Ooh, so indeed. I was sort of interested in examining these two different um, aspects of his uh, both his artistic identity and his and his work. And then what I realized is that you know when you consider his his oeuvre in the context of um, this sort of Russian religious renaissance, this renewed interest in medieval icon painting, and also, um, you know, not just in the art world, uh, but also more broadly, right? Um, we see uh, the rise of this kind of humanist Christian ph- philosophy uh, by the likes of, of Sergei Bulgakov and Pavel Florensky, who are trying to reconcile, um, you know, religion with kind of a new reality of, of modern life. Um, and so when I started to, to think about Kandinsky in that context, he doesn't seem like an outlier at mm, all. Mm-hmm. No, on the contrary, it seems very natural. Like what he's yeah. doing uh, makes perfect sense when you look at it in that context. Um, so that for me was just sort of trying to, for myself, try to understand, you know, how is it that he turned into an outlier when in fact, uh, when you, when you think about him in this broader context, he, he he's on the you know he's not an outlier at all. He's in, on the contrary, sort of a, an exemplar of this um, broader 
desire to reconcile a sort of religion and spirituality with modern science Mm -hmm. and a kind of modern epistemology um, without, you know, and I think a lot of, especially, you know, people like Paimon Florensky, who's one of the main representatives of this sort of religious renaissance in the early 20th century, he is himself an ordained Mm -hmm. priest, right? So these are people who are, you know, genuine believers themselves, and and they really do want to reconcile, you know, these, these, again, seemingly opposed polls of uh, sort of faith and belief and then um, sort of empiricism science on the other hand and, and of course Florensky was an ordained priest but also a scientist mm-hmm. right so he's almost like the perfect uh, person to be uh, thinking through some of these issues and these questions and so and when I was reading some of his works I saw a lot of parallels with Kandinsky's writing mm-hmm. and so I thought oh well you know if you if you actually uh, consider that they were colleagues, right, at the Russian Academy of Sciences uh, and at the Institute of Artistic Culture. Um, they they probably had offices, you know, on the same on the same oh, floor, right, wild. down the hall from yeah. each other. So I was sort of thinking, you know. Um, Maybe they, you know, maybe they had, they, they, they discussed it together, right? Um, and so it's possible that, in fact, Kandinsky just hasn't ever been really considered in this alternative context. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, like I said, I just, I was really blown away. I think this chapter had some of my favorite comparison images too. I mean, you're really good with this through the whole book. It, I, I think it it's a, a fascinating sort of, you could just look through the pictures in, in some ways in the book and get a sense of the shape or the the scope of, of how how many different directions your argument goes or what it contains as a whole. Obviously, if you read the book, <laughs> listeners, don't get me wrong. If you read the book, you get a lot more out of it. I feel like the students are going to be like, oh, she, said, she said you could just look at the pictures. No, no, no. <laughs> but you are a master of creating sort of comparisons. And nowhere was this better than in this Kandinsky chapter where, you know, showing the medieval icons compared to his really abstract works. I mean, not the weak abstraction, like the strongest versions of it. Uh, I was just like, oh my gosh, I I need to think about this whole thing in a new way. So this leads us to the final chapter, uh, which I also imagine you had to have been daunted to write. Malevich is also one of the, you know, the biggest, most well-known names. And and you put forward some really fascinating stuff in this chapter as well. So talk to us about this one. Yeah, so that one um, was me sort of thinking uh, through this idea of... um, a new realism, right? At the Zero Ten Last Futurist exhibition where uh, both Totlin and Malevich presented their most canonical works for the first mm-hmm. time. So Malevich's Suprematist paintings and his uh, Black Square and then uh, Totlin's um, uh, uh, counter-corner reliefs, right? The, the This idea uh, of these being um, the beginnings, right? The seeds of these... Uh, you know, major movements that would then go on to dominate uh, the Russian art world in the 1920s. So suprematism on the one hand and then constructivism on the other, although Tatlin himself um, claimed that he was never a constructivist. Oh. <laughs> That's a separate thing, yeah. but he was certainly understood that way uh, by uh, other uh, artists um, of the time period and then by subsequent uh, art historians. Um, so I was very interested how both artists use the term new realism, right? Which of course seems counterintuitive because these works are obviously not realist in the sort of 19th century sense of the word realism, right? And they're also 
quite different from each other. I mean, Molevich does um, these abstract geometric shapes, mm-hmm. right, in uh, pared down um, colors. Uh, the black square, of course, is a black square on a white background, um, but still working in a two-dimensional medium. And then Toplin puts together these... Um, these, you know, he, he never called them sculptures, he called them artworks, but these, um, you know, three-dimensional structures, right, most of which are assembled through found materials, so wood, um, aluminium, um, uh, sometimes rope. So it, it seemed like, you know, how do we, why realism, right? Um, and one of the things that I sort of realizes that um, the way that they use the term uh, realism was the way that uh, icon painting was described uh, by theorists like Florensky as being fundamentally realist in that it was not uh, a representation, right, of um, some alternative reality, but on the contrary, a presentation of it. And by that, I mean that in a kind of theological uh, sort of conception of an icon, right, it is basically a material extension of the divine. Um, So there's a way in which um, it has a completely different ontology Mm -hmm. uh, to um, what we call, you know, like a normal, uh, you know, artwork in the way that we understand it. And what's interesting in Russian too, is that there's even a distinction on the level of language in that one is uh, called piece, mm-hmm. right? Which literally means icon painting, right? Or icon writing because pisaj in the Russian means to mm-hmm. write uh, and the, and, and sort of um, painting uh, in the way that we understand it is called piece, which literally means writing from mm-hmm. life. Right, so there's this already this distinction that one depicts a kind of observable reality, right, painting from mm-hmm. life, and the other presents a sort of unseen metaphysical reality, right. But according to um, uh, theologians like Pavel Florensky, um, the, the 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 reality of the icon, that reality is the the kind of the truer right reality, mm-hmm. right, because it depicts um, a kind of um, you know, um, a, a metaphysical um, essence um, that is unseen with the human eye. And one of the things that's really interesting in someone like Florensky is that he then justifies it using um, ideas from sort of early 20th century science, saying things like, well, um, sort of retinal art is been fundamentally undermined by the discovery of the atom, right? Because there's this assumption that, reality is what we see with the eye and yet what modern science has shown that a lot of reality we don't see with the kind of naked eye right so there's this kind of interesting move to um uh support uh these claims for uh you know a a metaphysical reality that exists beyond uh sort of what we see with our Mm -hmm. eyes uh and so that kind of um recasts the very idea of what a what realism is right it's not the kind of representational realism of the of the period or the wanderers of the realist artists but it's a kind of a deeper realism and 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 for Tomlin and Malevich they use that in a materialist sense right Malevich claims that his realism is paint on canvas right what you see is what Mm -hmm. you get uh uh, and Totlin claims that his realism is the realism of actual objects in 
real space, mm-hmm. right? And not this kind of virtual Albertian window, right? Of a kind of false reality. So I was kind of very curious to see why um, they use these terms, right? And why both artists invoke the icon. Um, Malevich described the black square as an icon of his time. And of course he displayed it in just above the ceiling, right. In a corner, which is typically how icons are uh, placed right in homes. So I was very interested as to why that both artists um, would invoke the icon and what, what sort of um, dialectical and discursive purpose the icon served for them. Um, in, in recasting their art. Um, and one thing that I think I came to realize as well while I was working on that chapter, that it also had a lot to do with the kind of politics of originality, right? Oh, and that's well that said. by yeah. claiming, by claiming mm. right, that their, that their art came from the icon, uh, they, could, they could claim some kind of um, local genealogy, right? Um, rather than being just dismissed as being derivative of Picasso, right? So the, the, the corn counter reliefs are just, you know, Tuffin's take on Picasso's sculpture of his guitar, right? So this was a kind of way of, of, of claiming some kind of originality, right, in a, in a broader uh, pan-European context. So there's this kind of dual move. On the one hand, I think uh, the icon genuinely um, had some resonance for them, right? But on the other hand, it's also just a kind of, um, I'd say, political move to say, we're not looking at Picasso. We're not copying Picasso. We're actually reinventing the icon. Um, so I think that's sort of, um, you know, and of course, both are very different to what Kandinsky is doing. So to me, it was sort of interesting to see how all these different artists are getting different things uh, from the icon and from this particular artistic heritage in coming up with a new, um, you know, modernist um, style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely did get different things. I mean, you you demonstrate that very clearly. I will point out, too, that this last chapter had my favorite sort of section heading title. And you, you have some good ones throughout the book. I'll let listeners, you know, when they read it, encounter them and sort of be surprised. But uh, I think I sort of chuckled, but also yeah, was just, I don't know, I loved the uh, what's in a corner, the historical conflict between Malevich and Totland. I mean, that was just like, oh, I got I have to use that in class now. What's in a corner? That's great. <laughs> well, according to, to you know, um, eyewitness accounts we always have to take those with a with a sort of pinch of salt but apparently that the the when they were installing the show the zero ten show um that the, there was some huge fight that broke out between malevich and totlin that actually sort of degenerated into an actual fist fight nice um, and, <laughs> oh and apparently what happened was it was because Totlin claimed that Malevich stole his idea to display the black square in a corner. You and, stole my corner? I mean, again, That's what they were yelling about? Like, you stole my corner? They, they were really upset. <laughs> and you can actually see, I have to say, I kind of, I empathize with Totlin because when you look at the, the corner counter reliefs, right, 
structurally they 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 have to be displayed in a in a yes. corner because that's how right so you can see how he he probably did come up with that idea first uh-huh. and then Malevich was probably like oh wow that's really cool <laughs> <laughs> so on the 11th hour suddenly he decided to hang his black square in that way when you know logically um you know it's just a, it's a painting that's not how we normally display paintings yeah. right so there's this whole you know basic like a, an actual fist fight over this kind of the the originality of displaying an artwork in a corner mm-hmm. right and of course what what like i just said what what is typically um displayed in that way well icons yeah. right um so that was yeah that was kind of a it's actually really fun when you read a lot of these um, memoirs and letters from the early teens, right? And get a sense of a lot of these artists had really kind of larger than life personalities sure and they were really interesting. Yeah, I can second that for sure. These <laughs> primary source documents and witness accounts are, are great. Well, I, I know that we've taken up a lot of your time, but I, I want to make sure that I ask you one more question before you go, because we already sort of touched on it at the very beginning, but what are you working on now? Oh, well, um, I already forgot about that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for reminding me. So now I'm actually uh, interested in looking at... Um, sort of Russia's artistic relationship with Asia and the East. And I think, um, as I mentioned earlier, that very much comes out of my being in Singapore. So, um, you know, my perspective has been decentered, so to speak. Um, and one of the things that I think is very prevalent in Russian art history is this constant discussion of um, the relationship between Russian art and Russian artists and the West, with, of course, Paris being as the artistic mecca as it was for, you know, uh, most artists in the in the 19th and, and early 20th century. Um, and so a lot of what is written is about, you know, how Western European and specifically French art influenced Russian art, how artists, you know, went abroad to, to Western Europe. Um, and that's fine. You know, that's obviously a really important part of, of, of um, the Russian art story. Um, but for me, I, you know, I became increasingly interested in, well, what about the other side, right? Especially when we think about the Russian Empire being, you know, predominantly uh, east of Moscow. Um, what happens to, um, you know, artists, certainly um, Russian artists who traveled to um, to some of uh, Russia's, you know, um, colonial outposts? Um, and a lot of artists did. A lot of tra- artists traveled to Crimea and the Caucasus, right? And what about their exposure to these different uh, cultures, right? Different religions, uh, but also different representational traditions. And how did that impact their own art, right? Um, and not just kind of constantly looking to the West, right? So, so my new project is going to look uh, uh, start in the in the late 18th century, right? To look at um, uh, sort of uh, Catherine the Great's court, right, and the first um, uh, Russo-Turkish War, um, and how that uh, you know uh, sort of impacted both um, the sort of Russian visual culture, also material culture. There were a lot of um, you know um, 
porcelain, uh, you know, sets made uh, representing uh, the Ottoman Empire, right? And then sort of going all the way up to, uh, again, the early Soviet period and thinking about how uh, in the wake of the creation of the USSR, um, what kind of visual um, apparatus were kind of deployed to address these new uh, Soviet subjects who came from Central Asia, right? And one of the things that is sort of quite fascinating to see is that uh, sort of ideologically, the rhetoric was very much that, you know, we're we're counter-imperialist, right? We're anti-imperialist, we're anti-colonialist. And yet, um, visually, uh, some of the sort of Soviet posters very much drew on these conventions of 19th century Orientalism. Um, so I'm, I'm very interested in, in, in tracing that um, whole period and kind of rethinking, also thinking about collecting practices, right? Um, you had a lot of imperial um, administrators coming back from these regions, bringing back a lot of local art um, and sort of thinking about how um, this constituted another kind of alternative uh, visual tradition and genealogy and how that inspired artists uh, in the 19th and early 20th century. Wow. Oh, that sounds like such a great project. I'll have to have you back on the show to interview you once that one's out as well. Thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. I I really enjoyed talking to you about your book today. As I said before, I think it's a wonderful contribution to art history and to the study of Russian modernism. My name is Allison Lee, and this is New Books in Art, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I've been talking to Maria Tarutina about her new book, The Icon and the Square, Russian Modernism and the Russo-Byzantine Revival. Thanks for listening.